Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Bender, and joining me on this very crisp, still frosty out on the lawn afternoon is Emma Cole. Emma, how you doing? I'm fab, thanks. I'm currently wearing three layers on the top, two layers on the bottom, and two socks. What about you? Uh, I'm currently staring down the barrel of um, a heating bill into the hundreds of, like the multiple hundreds of pounds. So that I can remember when all in it was something like seventy quid a month. Yeah. And now you know, it's it's just it's just insane. But then the other thing is, you know, we're all working from home now, or at least, you know, we are. It's my office and it's so hard to type if your hands are cold. And I get very cold hands. I think I might have is it rain Raynards? Raynaud's? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, there you go. I mean, I was I was expecting something more than Emma, like you're about to say, oh yeah, it is. And I've got a really good cure for Reynards, or I've got it too, I commiserate, but no, just, yeah, no, it is. I have a friend who has it and it sounds awful, but on the bright side, I did want to say that was a very cool little slide in of some Arctic Monkeys lyrics, staring down the barrel of a gun. You know that one? I No? Don't. I I understand all cultural references, so of course I know that <laughs> it's one. The Arctic of course Monkeys. that one. Everyone knows the Arctic Monkeys. That is a classic. Did the Arctic Monkeys actually invent the idiom staring down the barrel of a gun? And it goes off. Yeah. So I know lots of people are singing along. I bet I'm they are. Sure. I hope the Arctic Monkeys may even listen to this. Imagine that. All <laughs> how many crossed. how many monkeys were there? I'm four. I'm. Re- Do you know what? I'm not sure. Multiple monkeys. <laughs> They're a big band back in the day. Anyway, we should They're probably huge. talk about probably talk about. <laughs> what are you, who are you listening to these days? Who's who's current, Emma? Arctic monkeys. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, my favorite. Uh, oh, current. I'm to a little bit of a. I really like um, French rap and more like reggaeton style. So I really love Aya Nakamura. She's such a vibe. Uh, Big Flo and Ollie, they're really vibey French rappers and also a fair few Tunisian artists. Um, Saint Levant, he's wicked. Big recommendation. Um, what about you, James? I just really love Ethiopian jazz. Oh, there we go. That's a wicked one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's I can't compete, I'm with, I can't compete with French rap and Tunisian reggaeton. Yeah, but we're all different. Come on, give me what actually is top of your... We are all different. No, I don't want to say... I'm one of those people that someone goes, do you like music? I'm like, I love music. And I'm like, what are you listening to? I'm like, I literally couldn't tell you a band that, you know, that isn't either dead or stopped recording in about 2004. You're feeling quite cheerful today then. (laughs) (laughs) I am. And I will, after this, put the Beatles back on because that's the only thing I listen to is the Beatles. Because why would you not? Did you like Now and Then? Did you like the new Beatles song that came out a while ago? This is now very dated. 
No, that's, yeah, and they did that AI, was it AI? They, they did, sort of... with Peter Jackson, he helped him out. Lord of the Rings into the Beatles. I mean, that's the natural pathway. I'm here for it. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm great. here for it. Well, I feel like this. none of this chat has really, you know, educated our listeners in any kind of way. So we should just stop talking amongst ourselves. You've had some interesting things to say, Emma. I feel like I haven't really added much to the kind of cyclist magazine podcast, Irv, I think is, or the canon, we can use that word, um, with a single N, not a double, because that shoots the balls. Um, so we'll talk to someone who does have some really great stories. We're going to welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Maria Leerstam. She cycled a really, really long way, Nearly 700 kilometres. Might not sound like that long, but guess where she did it? She did it. Go on, tell us, Emma. Antarctica. Yeah, that's nails. Boom. She cycled (laughs) from the Ross Ice Shelf, because every part of the snow is named after some Victorian bloke that went there first, to the South Pole, which is pretty mega. But she also did it on her own. She also did it on a three-wheel bike. And it was also, well, we'll find out how cold it was, but it also sounds very, very cold. And we also learn how you go to the toilet in the snow. So without further ado, let's welcome Maria. Uh, Well, Maria, I guess kind of first question for me is, you've just done this ride in December from the east edge of Ireland to the South Pole Inn in Kerry. Uh, Why why did you do this ride? And what's so interesting about the South Pole Inn? (sighs) Um, yeah, it was uh, it's quite a random ride, actually, but um, it was all about celebrating my 10-year anniversary of becoming the first person to cycle to the actual South Pole, which is in Antarctica. And the year after I got back from Antarctica in 2014, I met um, a guy called Mike who has written a lot of books about polar history. Um, and he told me about the South Pole Inn in Ireland. And so it's actually been in my sort of in my thoughts for a long time, thinking, hey, that would be quite nice to go and visit this uh, this inn or this pub. And the history behind it is that it was a pub that was founded by Tom Crean, who is actually one of the, the people who was on Captain Scott's expedition um, back in 1911, when the, 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 you know, the historical polar you know, explorers, we can call them explorers because they were they were the authentic explorers. We're more adventurers these days because most places have been explored. But yeah, he was on the original Captain Scott expedition. And fortunately, as we all know, a lot of the, the men on that expedition um, succumbed to, to um, a very sad ending. But luckily, Tom Crean was one that did get home. Um, he was from Ireland and he found this pub very much in memory of Captain Scott and also of Shackleton's heroic expedition. And so I thought it was very fitting for my 10-year anniversary to, to basically take a trip there. And, and of course, I can't just get in a car or get on a train or fly to it. I had to cycle to it. So the nearest point, really, my parents live in Pembrokeshire, so I headed down to them. And there's luckily, there's a ferry over to Roslare. So I thought, why not just start the journey, Roslare? And it was about 300 kilometres um, cycling, which I did in, I think it was about 26 hours, with just a few little stops along the way to get to the South Pole Inn. So it was a really nice way, actually, to celebrate my my 10-year anniversary. Oh, brilliant. So as much as anything else, I feel like you you sound really quite well-versed in like the history of kind of South Pole, North Pole, 
deep snow exploration. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like a natural place to actually want to go to. I mean, it's lovely for our minds to wander in that kind of like general direction and the imagination. But you actually went and did this. You didn't just ride 300 kilometers to the coast of Ireland and to a tiny pub. You also, yeah, as you say, you went across from the uh, the Ross Shelf, Ice Shelf, at the edge of um, Antarctica to the South Pole. I just almost don't know where to start with that, but maybe we'll just start with some statistics. So so how how far is that and how many metres elevation? Because that's the other thing I think people are not necessarily that aware mm. of, and I was quite surprised. Antarctica is like the highest... Um, average elevation continent on the planet. So it's not just like you're cycling and you're also cycling through snow. And more imp- most importantly, the question everyone wants to know, I'm sure, is like, how long does it take? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Um, Antarctica is not flat at all. And the South Pole sits at just under 3,000 metres. But because of the position on the globe of where the South Pole is, Things like altitude sickness, which I hadn't even thought about, it hadn't even crossed my mind. It's vastly accentuated at places like the South Pole. So even though it was only 3,000 metres, it was probably more equivalent to sort of about 5,000 in terms of that feeling of altitude sickness. So yeah, the route that I chose was from the Ross Ice Shelf. So that is the same side of Antarctica that Scott and Amazon set off from all those years ago. It's not a very trodden route by modern day adventurers, simply because the logistics isn't in place there. Uh, But it was a route that I chose um, that climbs up through the trans-Antarctic mountain range. And and this um, exceeds 3,000 metres in some areas. So for the first part of my cycle, I started at, well, when I say sea level, it was probably about 100 metres because of the ice is so thick down there. And I climbed over the first 90 kilometres up to 3,000 metres up, climbing up a glacier. And the glacier I chose is called the Leverett Glacier. So that sits nicely nestled in the Transantarctic mountains. But um, it's not as serene as that sounded at all, because there were avalanches falling, there were crevasses opening. It was, you know, quite, quite a journey. And once I'd climbed up over that, then I was up onto the polar plateau. And it sort of drops down a little bit, but then it continues to climb to the South Pole. So my journey the whole way was basically climbing. So in terms of distance, I cycled 638 kilometres, um, which is from the edge of the continent to the South Pole. So it was um, it was a it was quite a long way in those sorts of conditions. But it actually took me 10 days, 14 hours and 56 minutes in total. <laughs> Not that I was wow. counting the minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Maria, that's amazing. I've got so many questions. Um, I guess kind of just to to understand a bit more, you said the route you took isn't a typical one taken by modern explorers. So why, why that route? I wanted to be the first to cycle from the edge of the continent to the South Pole. Like I think you've said before, James, you said it's not the sort of typical place somebody would want to go. People don't even think like that. And and it kind of very much was the same for me until in 2010, I went to New Zealand and um, I was having a bit of a career break and I cycled the length of the country and um, I became super sort of cycling fit as you would, you know, cycling for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours a day. And uh, when I got right down to the south of South Island, I was standing at Bluff and I was looking out across the, the sea there and I was thinking, hey, that's Antarctica over there. How cool is that? I wonder if anyone's ever cycled. 
And uh, I quickly took myself off to an internet cafe and I started Googling about cycling in Antarctica, cycling on snow. Has anyone cycled to the pole? And um, yeah, back in 2010, it became very apparent that nobody had ever cycled to the South Pole. And that's what made me think, do you know what? This is something I have just got to go and do. I have no idea right now how to do it. I have never cycled on snow or ice. I know nothing about Antarctica, but that is something I want to go and do. And um, I set it, set myself the, the mission um, over the next four years then to plan this expedition. So just coming back to what you were asking about you know, the more common routes. So if you if you sort of Google, hey, I want to go to the South Pole now, um, a company called ALE, Antarctic Logistics Exploration, will come up and you can pay them an awful lot of money. They will fly you into Antarctica. They've got a like a, a base set up at the Union Glacier. Um, and that's where the majority, 99% of expeditions will begin from because all the logistics is in place. Now, I looked at this from a cycling point of view. Nobody's ever done this before. Cycling on, you know, deeps in deep snow, we all know it's not very doable, um, mainly because, you know, you get to such a cadence, it's just not possible to stay on the bike. Um, and so I looked at other options and I actually managed to get in contact with some scientists that work in Antarctica that were based at the McMurdo station, which is on the Ross Ice Shelf. And they told me that they'd recently began to transport fuel to the South Pole Station, the Scott Amazon Station, overland instead of flying it. And for this, they use these tractor-trailer traverses, towing fuel bladders. And the route they went was up through the Leverett Glacier. So straight away, it made me think, maybe that's going to be much more cyclable. It's not, it's not been done before in this way. And, you know, they were able to give me some information, not a lot of information, because Antarctic scientists don't talk a lot. <laughs> They're so focused on the science out there instead. So, but it was a, it was a punt I think I was willing to take. And, and that's why I chose that route. It was a little bit shorter than the other route, but it was much, much steeper in terms of I had a mountain range to climb up and, and negotiate, which was the Trans-Antarctic Mountains. So, yeah, it was... Really exciting, actually, to be on a route that other people hadn't been on and doing something that people had, had tried to cycle in, you know, in and around base camps in Antarctica, but nobody had ever cycled to the pole. So to know that I was doing something for the first time just felt absolutely unbelievable. And in a place like Antarctica, wow, I'm very lucky. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, excuse me that these are going to be a couple of dumb questions, but... <laughs> Did you do it? You did it on your own, right? You you know, you're you're self-sufficient. You're not going with an entourage or even just there's no there's no support vehicles. You're mostly on your own pitching your own camp and and yeah, you're self-sufficient, right? Yeah, I, I was the only cyclist and for the first half of the exhibition I was completely self-sufficient. And then once I was up onto the polar plateau, I was joined by a vehicle who did some filming and things like that for me. Um because I've got a documentary out at the moment. So um but yeah, for the first for the first half of it, um I was completely self-sufficient, which, you know, from a, a point of view of being out there and experiencing that, being in the complete, you know wilderness of Antarctica and really experiencing it from that point of view was really beautiful. And second, incredibly dumb, tell me like I'm five years old question. Is everything just white, right? I remember learning at school, maybe it's just this kind of apocryphal tale that polar bears have to cover their noses because it's the only black part of their body and that way they're just completely camouflaged. <laughs> and with that in mind, 
it leads me to sort of feel like if everything is just this beautiful blanket of snow, how weirdly discombobulating that would be to spend that amount of time just looking at whiteness on your own. Like, it kind of seems like a recipe to go slightly crazy. Well, completely the opposite, in fact, because I, I developed this theory of the, I suppose, the fascination of nothingness. And um, as I was cycling along, it just made me realize that we're in a society in a world right now that is just constantly requiring our thoughts, our attention, our minds, our bodies. There's constant pull, pull, pull on who we are. And to be in that environment, of course, I've got the natural environment of the cold and the wind and the snow and the sun burning and and things like that. But, you know, the fact that I was able, and it's something that I use every single day now, the ability to just switch myself off. And it's something that is really, really hard to do. You need to be somewhere where there is nothing to be able to do that because, you know, the minute some, you know, we all have our mobile phones and there's notifications flashing all the time and they're pulling us down this route or down that route. And, and you know, it's a very artificial environment to be in. So to be in this complete area you know, of nothingness was was just unbelievable. And it kind of gave me that opportunity to really think about who I was uh, what I wanted, and just to really, you know, give myself that that moment, which a lot of us don't have this, the opportunity to do. So it, it, it's interesting because I, I took some some earphones with me and I only had 20 songs on my iPod. So after the first probably half a day, I was so sick of my songs. I just, you know, I kind of just put the iPod away and didn't listen to anything. And it was a, this is the best thing I did because I just wanted to listen to the, the wind. I wanted to listen to the crunch of the wheels on the snow and the ice. And and it it, it really was an absolutely incredible experience. So I'm really thankful for that. It sounds incredibly like soul enriching, peaceful, almost wholesome, um, but also really, really hard. What about what did you do for food and sleep? Did you bring a tent? Like, how, how did that all happen? Yeah, so um, I carried everything that I needed on the back of the polar cycle. So we haven't talked about the, the cycle yet, but I'm sure we'll come to that. I had a frame on the back of the polar cycle and I carried about 55 kilograms worth of food and equipment on that. That was 20 days worth of food. I had to carry fuel bottles because um, I needed to, I had like a little stove which needs to have fuel. Um, and I carried a tent, sleeping bag, roll mat, um, bike spares, um, you know, emergency equipment, um, communication equipment, all of that. Um, the food that I ate was, it was basically all freeze dried food. Um, that we use on expeditions. So it's very, very lightweight, but very high in calories and, and a very balanced meal. Um, so every night I would stop and I would pitch my tent, which, is, you know, with three layers of gloves and a howling wind is a real challenge and you can't lose anything. And I remember the first thing I did before I even took this, the uh, tent out of the bag, I would actually attach it to a loop on my boots so in case I dropped it, it wouldn't fly away. So I'd, I'd put the tent up and then the next job was all about melting snow and ice to make water, both to drink and also to rehydrate my food. So this whole process took about three hours every single day. My day was 24 hours of which the sun was up 24 hours a day. I cycled for between 
12 and 17 hours every day. Um, as I got onto the polar plateau, the days got longer. So I cycled longer towards the end. And then it was about three hours tent routine. And then, you know, I just had a few hours left then to try and sleep. But of course, it was quite challenging, both because I was so excited, but also, you know, it was freezing cold and I'm lying in this sort of vast emptiness. So, although you mentioned polar bears earlier, there are no polar bears in Antarctica. They're all up in the north. They're up in the North Pole. So that was okay. I didn't see any wildlife whatsoever. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, that was quite rare. That's 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 incredible. Yeah, because I, I was going to ask, like, what were the nights like? Because I've spent time not in the snow, but in a desert before, and nighttime is kind of eerie. All kinds of noises. The way that sound just travels differently at nighttime too, and there's obviously just the darkness and the sheer kind of scale and the miniatureness of of oneself. What were the nights like? Actually, they sound like they were quite peaceful if they weren't if they weren't wolves howling or I mean I'm assuming the, the you know as you mentioned earlier the wind but was there kind of the creaking of ice and the kind of I don't know the the strain the sounds of whales coming up through um, <laughs> the glaciers I'm assuming you know I've watched a lot of Planet Earth that's definitely a thing. So um, the journey very much changed. So first of all, the, the period that I was in Antarctica, it's 24-hour daylight. So the sun never disappeared. It would just circle above my head, oh, wow. which was amazing. And I would, because I was heading south, it would, you know, it would start over here um, and then it would circle in front of me as it, as it went behind my right shoulder, it would start to get a lot colder um, just because the sun wasn't in my face. And that's when I would generally stop, pitch my tent. But yeah, so it was, it was daylight the whole time. The noise that you would hear on the polar plateau, it's just wind. That's all you could, there was nothing else. It was just wind. There was no echoey. There was nothing like that. It was just pure forever wind. <laughs> um, however, coming up the glacier, that was, that was all the, yeah, the Leverett Glacier. That was a very interesting experience. And um, I didn't sleep at all for three days because I had to sleep three nights in the mountain and uh, there I could actually see avalanches falling off the mountain. And I don't know if you've been in those sorts of, you know, in the, even in the Alps, you can see an avalanche fall before you actually hear it. And that was so true. You'd see it coming down. And then a few seconds later, you'd hear this big sort of crash, um, which is when the avalanche would have broken off. And that was happening a lot as I was climbing up and and it was only after I'd actually finished the expedition and I'd gone home about three weeks later I was told I was, I was still in touch with some of the scientists that apparently a whole crevasse had opened up across the Leverett Glacier which is the route that I took so it was no longer passable that season so I was very very lucky. Wow <laughs> very lucky indeed and I mean you mentioned like seeing these avalanches like what was your mindset like how did you you didn't speak to anyone didn't see anyone how, how did you keep such a strong mindset throughout all of this without sleeping for three days well so the other thing that I developed whilst I was out there and again something I use every day is my invisible circle principle and so I said to myself, and this was as I was climbing up the glacier and I was pedaling away and, uh, and I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This is not good. This is looking, this is looking terrible. I'm going to fall off. The, the cycle's going to roll away. You know, everything. I was thinking bad, bad, bad thoughts. And then all of a sudden I said to myself, right, I got to contain them somehow. So I created my invisible circle principle, which was I drew an invisible circle around myself and the polar cycle. And I said, anything within that circle 
I can control. I've got full control over. So whether I'm eating, whether I'm warm enough, whether I'm pedaling, whether I'm tending to injuries, if something goes wrong with the polar cycle, I can fix it. All these things I've got control over. Everything outside of those, so the wind, the mountains, the crevasses, I haven't got any control over. If something's going to happen, something's going to happen. I've got no control, so I have to just leave it be and just allow my thoughts to be focused on the things that I can control. And, you know, that was something as I was climbing the glacier, I had to make myself do that. Otherwise, I could have just like lost control and gone, I'm not going to do this. So, again, that was something that I use a lot with my daughter at the moment. She struggles a lot with anxiety. Um, so I talked to her a lot about that as well. And, you know, it's really nice. We have our circle that we're both in and we feel supported and we feel connected and it's it's a really lovely thing to have. So, yeah, I'm thankful also for that. I've got a lot, a lot to be thankful for this this journey. <laughs> did you did you sort of develop those things on the fly to be able to cope, or did you have a kind of sports psychologist or you know someone in your corner who was like, okay, when you experience something like this, here is a method to be able to cope with it. No, do you know it's all totally on the fly. And if anything, it's the other way round. Like I keep saying, I. I've been using all of this now in my more grown up life. I've become a mother. I've got two children. I'm, you know, I'm busy. I'm tired. I don't know. You know, there's so much going on in life now. I'm actually using a lot of that now. And I think, you know, I've never been one for going out and getting qualifications for this, that and everything. I'd much rather go out and just physically experience things myself and learn that way. Um, I think it's much more powerful and it's just I can see it working straight away as opposed to, you know, you're reading it from a textbook or you're, you've been told it by, by a psychologist. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's re- I'm, I'm really thankful. And I'd love to know, when you finally reached the South Pole, do you remember how it felt? And then did you, have, did you turn around and go back on your bike or did you get a lift back? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I first saw the South Pole station about 15 kilometres away, this tiny little speck, which I wasn't quite sure if it was it at the time. I could just see a speck. And then as I got closer and closer, I realised it was the South Pole station. And I've got to say my first, because if you think it takes me four years to plan this, I'd been in Antarctica for about three weeks because logistically to get to my start line took me weeks to get there. It'd been an awfully long time. And when I realised actually the expedition was coming to an end, I had I had quite a feeling of sadness because, and I think a lot of sort of sports people at the end of their careers or people that have, you know, built up for something, you're like, oh my God, what next? And and the thing that started running through my mind was, right, where can I cycle to next? And the first thing I thought about was I want to pedal across the Atlantic because I love the whole concept of developing new means of doing things that haven't been thought of or have been proved impossible. That's what I love to do. I just want to go and think of things differently, you know, create my own path and think of things differently. And I thought, you know, pedaling across the Atlantic Ocean, that could be pretty cool to try and do that. So as I was getting towards the South Pole, all these kind of confused thoughts, I guess, were going on in my head. And and then as I actually cycled to the pole, so the pole, I'm sure you've seen the ceremonial ball that stands at the South Pole. Um, I cycled up to that and I actually crashed into it, almost knocked it down. <laughs> and uh, so they grabbed hold of it. And it was really at that stage that the the uh, the real emotions of what I'd just done came out. Um, I was kind of very emotional, very tearful. You know, I couldn't believe I'd I'd actually cycled every single meter of the way as well. So now there's been a number of people in the last 10 years that have tried to cycle to the pole. I think only two of them have 
got to the pole. However, both of them have either skied towing their bike or have pushed their bike a lot of the way. Nobody has managed to cycle the whole way to the pole since. Um, this year, there was an Italian professional cyclist who was out there. Um, and unfortunately, he didn't make it for the second time. Um, but again, it's because, you know, they're going the same route. They're using the same bikes. They're using the same concept. They're not thinking about it in a different way. And so, yeah, th- those are sort of the things I love to do. And and it wasn't until a few weeks later when I got home that I realized that not only had I become the first person to cycle to the South Pole, I'd also set the human powered speed record for any coast to pole traverse in history. And that still stands today. So 10 days, 14 hours and 56 seconds is still the, the human powered speed record from the edge of the continent to the South Pole. And maybe I should mention it on this podcast. Chris Hoy was actually hoping to go out and beat my record the year after I went there. He actually didn't go in the end. So <laughs> that's probably lucky. And I, I say I say good. I feel that's not in the spirit of this, Chris. <laughs> he, he can go and stick to his racing cars, whatever it is he decided to do post cycling. But but no, when you so so when you get to the um get to the the kind of the silver orb, do you get to stick a sticker on it like at the top of a pass? Everyone's got, you know, all the motorcycle <laughs> gangs that have gone up there. They've stuck their Hells Angels stickers on there. And then you've got your CC sticker. No, however, um, the, the South, so at the South Pole, um, there's the Scott and Amazon Research Station, which is home to about 150 scientists in the summer and about 50 scientists in the winter. And uh, they'd all been watching me on my tracker. So they came out to greet me. And uh, they invited me to come into the South Pole. And, and there they gave me a stamp in my passport. So that was as good as, I'd say. Oh, <laughs> so nice. I do have a, a Scott Amazon stamp in my passport. <laughs> Brilliant. That is pretty special. But yeah. <laughs> like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app and right now listeners of the Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month Join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with Join. So one thing that, yes, I think everyone that's listening to this will be burning to ask the question, what bike did you do it on? Because it wasn't just a regular bike. You've already mentioned that you were towing 55 kilos. I don't know if you saw, but I was just on my phone trying to work out some um, average speeds, which I reckon you're maybe doing between about four and six kilometers an hour. And that is probably because everything is so incredibly heavy and heavy going. I can't imagine, you know, even just the tires. Let's start with the tires. What tires cycle across the Antarctic? Yeah, as you said, I wasn't on a regular bike at all. In 2012, I went out to Siberia to Lake Baikal. It was I was on a Chorus Titanium bike, 
just a normal mountain bike with studs in the tires because I wanted to test this whole cycling on ice. And that was taking part in a race called the Siberian Black Ice Race. Um, which was cycling the length of Lake Baikal, which is the longest and deepest freshwater lake in the world. And what I realized was that, okay, cycling on ice, brilliant. Go for a thin tire, stick a load of studs in it and pedal like hell and you'll win the race for sure. If it's ice, you're okay. The northern part of the lake was actually quite deep in snow. And as I started getting into the snow, the snow was sticking onto the studs. And then as it was getting deeper and deeper, cycling the whole two-wheel cycling just failed terribly it just didn't work at all there's fat bikes as well that have the thicker tires that have the five inch tires and um, there were a couple of other competitors during that race that were on fat bikes and they basically had the same problem the bikes are heavier so the speeds are slower and as soon as you get into deep snow you know, you, you you just can't, you can't do it. Even vehicles struggle sometimes to get through deep snow. So I kind of came back from that race and I thought, right, if I'm going to do this, I've got to think slightly differently about the whole situation. And there were two really big things I had needed to think about. Number one was stability. So traveling, like you said, and, and when I went up the glacier, you know, my speed was probably 0.01 kilometers an hour. I mean, it was so slow. I was watching the logo on the inside of my tire going around. It would take about 60 seconds for one revolution. <laughs> I mean, it was painful. <laughs> so stability was absolutely key. I needed to be on something that would, you know, didn't require forward propulsion to stay upright. And the other thing was a weight-bearing capability. Any bike, yeah, we can put panniers on and we can load a bit on, but, you know, there's probably a limit of 20, 30 kg. And, you know, I needed to have a lot more capability of that. And when people ski to the pole, they pull pulks behind them. They have these big sledges with all of their equipment, up to 80, 90 kg worth of equipment. And, of course, then on a bike, trying to pull something like that, again, you're creating another huge drag and problem for yourself. And then the third thing, actually, is three things, was the wind in Antarctica always blows from the South Pole. So whichever, whichever way you approach the South Pole, you have a headwind and a really, really strong headwind. So I needed to be in a, the most aerodynamic position possible. And, of course, cycling, particularly with big bulky clothes and everything in isn't particularly aerodynamic. So with these three things in mind, we, I, I basically pulled together a team of people that were experts in the field. So Chorus Titanium Bikes, who had sponsored me for a while, they were part of it. And then also we got in touch with a company called Inspired Cycle Engineering um, down in Falmouth, who specialised in three-wheeled trikes, basically. And um, and then also I spoke to a number of um, sort of like biomechanic people and, um, and and these sorts of things. And and together we came up with the idea of one of these three wheeled, um, so two wheels at the front, one at the back to give the stability and the weight bearing capability. Um, and then we put these thick five, uh, almost five inch tires on. And um, in the rear tire, I'd actually... Put in by hand 150 uh, metal studs because I knew when I was going up the glacier, it's more likely to be ice than much snow on that. So I had the studs in there to 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 sort of 
keep me uh, from sliding backwards. But funny enough, I had um, this awful nightmare for about six months leading up to the expedition that I'd cycle up the glacier, I'd fall off the polar cycle, it would roll all the way down to the bottom, I'd have to run all the way back down and do it again. And that, and I kept waking up as I was part of this cycle. And I, I never actually got to the polar plateau in my dreams. So when I approached the Leverett Glacier, it was, um, you know, it was another thing that I was, I was concerned about. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the polar cycle is amazing. Um, it's, I've got it at home at the, at the moment. I'm, I'm currently considering uh, a home for it um, in a museum um, because it's not very usable here. It hasn't got very good steering you know, because I, I basically just needed to head due south during the expedition. So it's turning circles terrible. It's really big and bulky, so you can't fit it in many places. But, um, you know, it absolutely served the purpose for the expedition. Um, it was brilliant. And I, like I said, I was able to, to pedal every single metre of the way. And in the areas where I did struggle and got a bit stuck, I was also able to use my hands on the front tyres to try and push it forward and to get over some of the sastrugian things that I that I came across on the polar plateau. So, And it was a very comfortable position. I was able to just sit in it for seven, 17 hours a day with no trouble at all. No saddle, You don't get saddle sores in that position as well. So that was good. <laughs> I mean, that sounds utterly incredible and just so cool that, yeah, you created this bike that would take you to the South Pole. Um, I think that's awesome. I mean, does it ever become normal to become that person that's done such an insane expedition? I mean, you've done so many, not, you know, not, not everyone does the Siberian black ice race, but, you know, to be the, you know, the world record holder to have that does, you know, even though it was 10 years ago or, or so, does that ever really sink in? Does it ever become normal? I do you know I don't know really I'm I'm sort of I kind of just sit at home and do my thing at the moment I'm I'm a mum to two little girls and I you know I've put on this planet to be a mother that is why I'm here I absolutely love that and I love getting them into biking we're at the bike park all the time to see my little eight-year-old who who has the anxiety issues on a mountain bike flying down the mountains completely fearless is just unbelievable so um yeah I mean I've I'm always I'm always eager to do new things and you know after after every Antarctic season so it's just come to a close now I'm like right I got to contact a couple of companies and go right we've got a we got another mission here because there is one more outstanding expedition in, in Antarctica that needs to be done um and so I'm yeah I'm I'm always thinking about these things and you know I I, I guess I'm I suppose I'm never satisfied because I always want to try try and do more and more so yeah, but I, I suppose I am lead, leading that double life, the sort of mother normal. I go to Tesco's, I do all the normal things, but then deep down I've got this desire to want to do, to continue to do these crazy things. And it's always going to be cycling because I blooming love that sport. It's just unbelievable. I just, I love the places you can go to and I just love the whole action of it. I love the fact, you know, our bodies are made for cycling. It's like using all the major muscle groups and and everything and and I actually ride um, a Scott Scale 910, which is my bike that I've done all of my expedition adventure races on. So I, I'm an adventure racer. I race in the World Series. I've just been out to South Africa three months ago to take part in the Adventure Racing World Championships. And that's the bike that I've always used. And I just like I, it feels part of me. You know, it just feels like we're one. So, yeah, I just love being out on that. Has it has it changed? I mean, you said that you know there's always there's going to be another challenge. You mentioned that there's stuff still yet to do 
in Antarctica, another idea for a challenge there. Has your appreciation of what constitutes a challenge changed with the advent of kids? So in 2013, it was, you know, just just you, I, I guess, in terms of people being dependent on you. And now you're thinking of doing these other things. And racing in South Africa, that's very, very hard, I'm, I'm sure. But riding a bike across Antarctica is exceptionally dangerous. Yeah, yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why I think in the last eight years since I've had the children, or nine years, including the nine months of pregnancy of the first one, I've very much sort of held back for any held back from any big expeditions. The maximum time I've been away is sort of two weeks at a time from the girls. Um, and that's very few and far between. As they as they're growing up and you know, becoming more more independent. Um, I, I feel like I've still got more in me to do more. So I would like to. And I think, you know, yes, Antarctica is dangerous, is a dangerous place but just because of the fact it's so remote. The one thing I would never do again is cycle across Lake Baikal, however. That was in terms of danger was the ice was melting underneath my tires. Uh, there's more vehicles at the bottom of Lake Baikal than any other body of water in the world. <laughs> uh, there were wolves howling in the surrounding mountains. And, um, you know, it was very extreme. And uh, the organizers realized after a while that they would never actually put this race on again, because in terms of any rescue operation, it was completely impossible based on the the lake. So, you know, there's certain things I think you do and you go, oh my God, I would not do that again. Similarly, I used to ice climb quite a lot. I wouldn't ice climb now because I think the risk involved in that is just too high. Um, I need to be around for my girls. So, yeah, I, it's definitely made me think, whether it's age or being the mother, it's probably the combination of the two. I do definitely calculate risk in a different way now. But it doesn't mean I can't have amazing adventures and do amazing, amazing things. Absolutely. Another dumb question from me. Was it cold? I know that sounds so stupid, but for example, it's been really cold here. I rode my bike um, yesterday evening in a puffer jacket. By the time I got to where I was going, because I was a bit late, I was really hot. And, you know, for people that have been skiing, you can have a beautifully crisp day and the way that the sun reflects back off the snow, you know, you can ski in a t-shirt, you're warm. And you're, I know you're going relatively slowly compared to how fast you'll go on your Scott scale, but you're obviously putting in heaps of effort. But at the same time, is it just really cold? Because it sounds and it looks from pictures absolutely chapping. So I've actually, I probably shouldn't say this, but I've actually been colder on a mountain in the Lake District, <laughs> simply because it was during an adventure race and it was pouring with rain, hadn't slept for three days, hadn't eaten properly. It was about two degrees. And I think the wet and the cold and being run down is almost worse. It's like here, when it's minus four, we all absolutely freeze because we don't go out with the right clothing. We don't expect it. We're not prepared or planned for it. Don't get me wrong, in Antarctica, on the polar plateau, if any part of your skin is exposed, you're going to know about it. And also you get this sense, this feeling that the human body is not meant to survive in these conditions because it won't survive in those conditions for very long if you don't manage it right. Luckily, you know, we're in a modern day day we have all the equipment I had all the latest down clothing on um, I'd learned from my previous expeditions all about layering 
the importance of not sweating. So the second I felt like I was starting to get a bit hot, I would vent one of my zips. I had all of the right kit and equipment. My feet did suffer. I had Baffin boots on, which were supposed to go down to sort of minus 40 boots, but my toes did, did suffer quite a lot. Um, I've still not quite got feeling back in them and I've lost a few toenails and things like that. But, um, you know, I think the, the, the coldest registered on the thermometer when I was there was minus 29, but I didn't take into account wind chill. So wind chill would take it below sort of minus 40 with, with, with those sorts of conditions. But it's interesting how, you know, a, a I think in, in the UK at, at um, that two degree, windy and rainy, you're probably feeling about as cold as maybe I was feeling when I was in Antarctica at minus, minus 25, minus 30, just because, of, you know, the, the rain, I think, is the worst thing. So, um, but yeah, I was very careful. I, I did start to develop a bit of frostbite in my cheek at one stage. Um, because I, I had um, goggles on and then a neoprene face mask. And there was this tiny, tiny gap here, which luckily I was able, I did spot one night because I had a tiny mirror with me so I could check my face and managed to cover that up. So yeah, there's there's no room for error out there. You have to be on it and you have to have the right equipment. Yeah, because I mean, for example, I've heard you know, the famous story of Ranulph Fiennes kind of cutting off fingers when he came back or you know people's eyeballs freezing if they take off their goggles to to look for something which i yeah i i'm i'm sure are not apocryphal tales they are that's the, that's the real deal but i always think in which case what are you taking in terms of you know where where's your gear from because i'm assuming you're not taking a jacket from dhb or some overshoes from <laughs> costelli like you're going to have some serious gear and it's probably also not going to be like the inuits where I think they use like seal intestine to make kind of early waterproof <laughs> jackets. And it's also not going to be Canada goose. Like where, where, where is this stuff no. coming from to keep <laughs> you protected in minus 29 degrees? Um, I was able to use all of the mountain equipment gear and they very kindly sponsored me with um, jackets and trousers and sleeping bags and, and all of those sorts of things. So yeah, I used like wool base layers as well. Um, which kept me really lovely and warm. Um, lots of different layers. I, I had one mountain equipment jacket, which I would only ever put on if I stopped. So it was sort of my emergency layer. I always wanted to make sure I had another layer. So if I was stationary, that's when the emergency layer goes on at no other time. Um, that was really important. And then, yeah, I had um, three layers of trousers on as well. And now you're going to have to ask me the toilet question because everyone asks me how you go to the toilet. So there is a rule. There is a 10 second rule. So first of all, you have to wait until you really need to go <laughs> because you've only got 10 seconds to do what you're going to do. And then you've got to pull your trousers up because you just your your backside would just freeze otherwise. <laughs> so you had to do it very, very quickly. And uh, yeah, so um and yeah, I had sort of zips in a way, so I was able to take the bottom half off before without having to take everything else off. But yeah, no, lots of layers of gloves as well. I had um, one thin pair of gloves and I had a thick pair of gloves. And then on the polar cycle, I had a set of pogies, which are the sort of gloves that sit on the handlebars, which are really woolly. And they were lovely because they came right up to my elbows. So they gave really, really good protection. And my hands were actually great. I was, I was fine with my hands. It was my feet that struggled the most. But I think that's because the position I was in, I was sort of sitting with my feet sort of fairly high up in front of me. Um, as I was pedaling, 
we did make quite a lot of adjustments to the polar cycle to lower the shaft so my feet could be as po- low as they possibly could be. But of course, because of sastrugi, um, you know, any uneven ground, I couldn't, it couldn't be too low. Um, I had to have enough clearance there to get over things. So, so I made it, I actually adapted as I was getting cold or I adapted that I would cycle for an hour and then I'd get off and for two minutes I would jump up and down just to get the blood going back in the feet. So that's kind of what I did for 17 hours. (laughs) (laughs) I cycle or jump up and down. (laughs) That's mad. These are things that I would never typically think about. And I mean, even though we're going through this cold spell, it kind of, it puts it all into perspective. It's really not that cold outside. Um, But Maria, one thing I would love to know is, I mean, you've also written a book about your expedition called uh, Cycling to the South Pole, A World First. Was it hard to actually sit down and write the book? Because you're obviously a very active person. You're always doing some sort of insane outdoor expedition. Was it quite hard having to just sit down inside on a laptop? Yeah, it was harder than the expedition. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I actually started because I I got pregnant within about six months of coming back from Antarctica. And um, I actually started writing my book at night as I was breastfeeding my baby. (laughs) Because it was the only time I would actually sort of sit down. So, yeah, for for months I would be writing at night and I'd spend sort of an hour every two hours um, just scribbling on my on my iPad and I was, you know, just making loads and loads of notes. And and then I basically I had a whole re- I had absolutely loads of content. And uh, I'm really lucky because my mother is a journalist. Yes. <laughs> what a dream. Oh, my gosh. So I was able to throw her sort of this brain dump, which I'd basically done. And I'd written an awful lot of stuff that she threw away. And she said, that sounds ridiculous. Get it out. So um, the book <laughs> became shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, but yeah, she was wonderful. It took me years. It probably took me about two years to actually from starting to write to actually getting it published. Um, just yeah because I was in the midst of sort of baby things so yeah no that so that was I was really really lucky and um in fact I'm working on because I'm I've just run out of books it's still for sale it's on for sale on Amazon but um I also sell direct and I've got um the color photos in the book that I sell direct and I'll usually sign it and things and I've just actually run out. So I'm doing a fourth print run and I'm going to do an update. There's going to be an additional chapter all about 10 years on the 10 year anniversary um, and add a few more bits and pieces to it. So some more photographs as well. So is that to look forward to? So I'm busy working on that at the moment. Oh, amazing. Um, and th- this is maybe, I hope this doesn't sound like a kind of, I don't know, in this country, we hate discussing money. It's a vulgar subject, but I'm always just so one in wonderment at how people can afford to do these things kind of thing because you explained that to go over to just to get to the Ross ice shelf you know that's that's not like getting a train somewhere or a ferry or <laughs> even a flight that's like that's a whole other world of transport that supports somewhere like Antarctica so is it just like all self-funded or do you go around to like backers and say hey I'm going to do this thing yeah you mentioned kit brands there and so there's some you know investment for them because they get some some publicity because it sounds fiercely expensive so how yeah how how did you manage to get to the point where it's like okay I've got enough equipment and and time and yeah everything else to be able to do this yeah I mean I spent two years trying to get money from companies basically um the majority of companies that had some kind of kit or equipment or advice or support 
to offer. I would get all of that for free. So I was lucky enough to get all of my kitchen equipment for free for all three sponsorship um, and the polar cycle, um, some of the training. Um, I, I work with a like a training, a coach up at Loughborough University as well. All of that was funded um, through sponsorship. But then, like you say, just the flights, getting to Antarctica or logistics in Antarctica, it's an awful lot of money. And a lot of that I had to actually fund myself through savings. I borrowed money. It's everything that I'm trying to pay back still 10 years on. So um, I do corporate speaking. Um, I've got the book for sale. I've got documentaries for sale. And then I run um, a business called Burn Series, which is adventure sports for families with children. So, you know, I'm trying to increase the numbers of that to try and generate a little bit as well but yeah every day is all about trying to pay back my crazy ideas so (laughs) yeah I think if I go to Antarctica again I will definitely be looking more for funding this time because it's yeah it's a massive commitment it's not just go and do it and you know I, I always feel a little bit jealous when I see people that you know in the army maybe that have gone out there and have been backed by the army or people have managed to get some massive big headline sponsor when I you know when I was approaching sponsors I was a complete unknown I was trying to do something that was impossible had never been done before they just all thought I was completely balmy and um, the spreadsheet that I've got which I've still got I think it had 131 companies on that I approached um, to try and get funding for it but you know it's a really really competitive world out there and it's it's not easy at all and you know if I do something again I'm not expecting it to be easy even though I've done it and I can prove that I know how to do it and I know that I could succeed in what I do but it's you know it's, it's challenging and you know of course they need something back from it they need good publicity etc so yeah it's it, it is quite a it is a big part of expeditions actually being able to do the whole promotion of it the social media side of it and and all of that and you know that's a bit that I've never been particularly good at so yeah I've got a lot to learn on that front no it just it just sounds yeah incredibly complicated because also yeah you're your own business case manager and implementer and everything else and just yeah just thinking like the little that I know of those the kind of that golden age of particularly um North and South Pole exploration, it was kind of fueled by the fact that Victorian, well, Victorian England, but, you know, the rest of the, the, the world was just fascinated by these places that existed almost like the moon, whereas now, you know, now people go to space, like on a fairly regular um, basis. So I wonder if the kind of, do you get the sense when you talk to people and you say, I would love you to back me to do this? Is that kind of like the wonderment still there in people or are people a bit jaded where they sort of go, oh, wow, I mean, that sounds amazing. Then then the conversation kind of gets to that kind of but, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think and a lot of the feedback um, I've had is that it's not so much what you're doing, it's what you make of what you've done <laughs> and it's how you sort of sell it afterwards because, you know, for a company to sponsor you, all they're interested in is how many times their brand is going to get mentioned, of course, because that's the value add to them. You know, I think, you know, with the expeditions that I do and that I'm thinking of doing, it's very much about doing something new, thinking differently, creating something different, a very like an innovative side of things. So I'm never going to go out and try and make somebody think I'm the strongest, the fittest, that side of things, fastest, etc. It's because that's not what I sort of stand for when I do these things. It's much more around the creativity and the innovation of what I do 
which is which I'm really passionate about. And years ago, like like you say that you know back in the the olden days of polar exploration, a lot of that was all around the science of the expeditions. You know, Scott he was all about the science. He was out there. He was pulling into the you know the last day where they you know didn't get back out of their tent you know, they were pulling samples back from Antarctica. So a lot of it was around the science as well as exploring different places. Amazon, however, he had a slightly different motive. He was about, I want to be the first. So there's a lot of different motives. And I think, you know, today, quite a lot of people that go, say, to the South Pole, the North Pole, climb Everest, etc. They try and bring in an element of science to it, but that's more to try and sell the idea to somebody um, because, you know, I would never say I'm going to go to the South Pole but from a scientific point of view, because I have no background in science. It's not what I it's not what I do. So, yeah, for, for me, it's much more about that whole creativity difference, something new. Think about maybe the same thing, but in a totally different way to make it more efficient or more effective or more achievable. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot, lot to think about. <laughs> Absolutely. Which begs that final question. What next? You've alluded to a few things, but can you can you actually tell us any kind of any more details, or is it all kind of top secret stuff? You don't want somebody else coming on, being like, "Right, great idea, I'm going to go and do that now." Well, I mean, I the Antarctic season always gets me thinking again, and I, I generally don't cover the same terrain. I love to go to new places. So with all the adventure races I've done around the world, you know, I've raced across Patagonia, I've raced across Norway, Sweden, other places in South America. Croatia, Czech Republic, you know, loads of different countries. And it's the fact that I go to different places and explore different places um, that I love. But I don't know, with Antarctica, it seems every year a cyclist goes out there, they're trying to do something and I know how to do it. <laughs> um, and it would be it would be more around like a, a full traverse of Antarctica from coast to coast. Wow. Um, which is has not been achieved yet. It's only been attempted once, which was this cyclist this year. Um, unfortunately, he didn't actually get to the pole, and that was his second attempt. But based on what I would do, I think I would know what I would do. It would, it would be a different. It would be a different kind of cycle as well. It wouldn't be the polar cycle. Uh, so hopefully, that will be sitting in a museum soon. It would be another one. It would be a different route as well. So, yeah, lots to think about there. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Amazing. Well, Maria, thank you so much for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. It's been, yeah, it's just an inspiring story to listen to. And it really does, as Emma said, put our complaints about, oh, it's really cold into perspective. And also just always talking to someone like you really puts my riding into perspective where I kind of think... Yeah, I'm. I'm. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you're. You're looking at me the same, Emma. Although Emma, Emma cycled to Tunisia, so she's she's got some chops. Wow. No, I've, honestly, Antarctica much harder. But <laughs> Tunisia was a breeze in comparison to everything you've just said. <laughs> oh, it's been so nice talking to you. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Maria. That was utterly inspiring. I mean. I don't know if I'm inspired. I'm terrified of avalanches. There's a lot going on. But James, what I want to know, right? Let's just imagine you're setting off to ride across Antarctica, let's just say. <laughs> but you've got a playlist of 20 songs, as Maria had. What are the top five? What are the top five? This is a bit of Desert Island Diskies, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, for a lot of them are going to be craft work because there's, I've got wonderful memories of craft work. 
Um, the first I got a, my first time I got a road bike stopped me at the point where you think he's really prattling on. But my first road bike, I was quite old. I think I was like I was at uni, so I was like twenty, and I built it up from various eBay parts, and I took it out on Southampton Common really early, like six a.m. one morning, and listened to Kraftwerk's Tour de France soundtrack, which again I'm probably I I'm showing my age. I th- I'm not sure when it came out. Uh, could have been the 80s, could have been the 90s. Anyway, it's a seminal masterpiece that really encapsulates the kind of man machine of riding. So it's very motivating for me, but also it has wonderful kind of nostalgia attached to it. Um, and then, yeah, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the Beatles, I'd have a bit of Blackbird in there because that'd be beautiful to listen to Blackbird. Here Comes the Sun because it never left because oh, it's a 24-hour day. And yeah, some metal, I'd throw in some Metallica. Okay, that was a. I didn't expect that, but I'm here for it. Yeah, there you go, there you go, and maybe some old hip hop, some Souls of Mischief, uh, Jurassic Five. Um, I don't know. Can I have some Chili Peppers too? I'm just naming things that once upon a time <laughs> when I was younger, people thought you were cool if you said those names. <laughs> no, that is. That sounds like a good playlist. I have to say. So go on then. What's on yours other than uh, Tunisian MCs? <laughs> well, honestly, first thing comes to my head: Earth, Wind, and Fire. Because I think it's so feel good. I'll be there just yeah. like bopping away on my bike, keeping warm. <laughs> I love the fact she got off her bike after an hour and then did some star jumps or whatever. <laughs> I was like, I rate that. Love that. Um, yeah, sorry, Earth, Wind and Fire. I think, um, oh, there's a song called Champions by Joy. Basically, it just tells you how great you are. Nice. Um, and so I think I'd have that because, you know, when the going gets tough, you want a little reminder. Yeah, probably a lot of... You know, at a wedding, like the songs at a wedding, they're all like, love so great, world so beautiful, quite jazzy, boppy. That's what I'd go for. I'm not sure I'd put Metallica in there, but maybe maybe it's where I'm going wrong. Yeah, no, you need something that's like really punchy, I think, just to like, because there's going to be a day or a time where you kind of, I don't know, I've done various endurance things, um, not to that length and not to that level, but you go through the real gamut of emotions and one of them is like kind of anger can make you quite kind of angry, I think, kind of just like frustrated you're still doing something and you kind of want to go, ah, and you can't stop doing it, which then confounds the frustration because you know you can't stop. So then I'd have something like something quite angry to be that kind of emotional valve, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I like your reasoning. I mean, when I... Boring story, but when I cycled to Tunisia, um, I didn't actually listen to very much music. I listened to music on three days, and most of it was quite like, "Woo, just keeps, yeah, just keeps swimming, just keeps from Nemo." <laughs> That's definitely high on my list. <laughs> well, yeah, it's going to take more thought for me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, it sounds like I've got two years to think about it. Though, it's going to take me two years to get the funding, at least, and then four years planning, and then four years planning. I mean, it just sounds crazy, but. Have you heard, this is a bit of a, this is this is now a very left field thing. Have you heard, because I came across this, of Mrs. Chippy? The cat, the cat that you didn't have. make it. I have. Yeah. The cat that didn't make it. The cat that didn't make it. Don't you feel, okay, so let's not just have this kind of in-joke. Um, I didn't know any of that. So Mrs. Chippy, so Shackleton, Ernest Shackleton went to the um, South Pole, went to the Antarctic to go and look at stuff, because that's what he did back in the day, and then like, bring some stuff home and he went on a boat called the endurance which got stuck in an ice flow then the ice started crushing the hull and everyone was on board apparently for like five months just sat in the ice until they're like yeah your house is you know the boat's getting crushed we should probably get off and then they went and sort of sat about then they got on some i don't know they eventually ended up on this place called elephant island 
months and months pass, everybody magically eventually survives. Shackleton goes off in some lifeboats and ends up getting help from a, a whaling station. And then, I don't know, the Chilean government, or, I don't know, some people come and get them, basically. Spoiler alert. Seven months of this and everyone is fine. And the only person that perished or soul that perished was... Mr. Chippy. Mrs. Chippy. Mrs. Chippy. Mrs. Chippy. Sorry, Mrs. Chippy. gosh. Sorry, Mrs. Chippy. Did they just not feed Mrs. Chippy? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, number one, it's a cat. Not that well suited. Did they eat Mrs. Chippy? They, I don't reckon they would have eaten. You've got five months with what, like, obviously they're, you know, trying to get some food, but someone's going to get hungry and I reckon... But at the same time, though, Mrs. Chippy belonged... The reason she was called Mrs. Chippy is because she was the uh, cat of the ship's carpenter. It was a real... Ship's carpenters, apparently, anyway. I come from Portsmouth, so I know all about boats. Ship's carpenters, really, really important people on a boat. So, yeah, I don't reckon they would, that would have flown because Henry McNeish would have been like, nah, mate, you're not eating my cat. She's too important. Yeah. And, he was, and he was instrumental in making... In shoring up the lifeboats so that Shackleton could get from Elephant Island to... Uh, wherever it was, can't remember. You can look it up. Okay, another question. Mm. Uh, do we know? Sorry, two more questions. Do we know how old Mrs. Chippy was? And cat years or human years? Both will do. Any of them. And do we know whether um, Mrs. Chippy died of natural causes or did she fall down a crevasse? Have we got any more information on that? Uh, I think we'll have to do some digging. I think that the true answer to that lies in the film that Pixar should make about this because I feel like. And I'm going to say this out loud and we can timestamp it. And this is my intellectual property because I've thought about this for a while. A Mrs. Chippy film, right? A kind of like <laughs> Ratatouille-esque film where it's all kind of shot from the knee down as far as humans are concerned. And it's all kind mm-hmm. of like shot at kind of animal level. And Mrs. Chippy's there and the rats are kind of her friends, but they're also not her friends because that's why, and again, why a cat would be on a boat is to keep the rats at bay um and then they'd be like oh dire straits and they'd be trying to like pal up with the with the husky the sleigh dogs who were maybe like highfalutin and weren't going to go so you've got this kind of like an, there's a bunch of animals that can start having an animal adventure whilst the humans are buzzing around trying to work out how they get off elephant island i think it writes itself i think you're right and i'm wondering what you're doing on a cycl- cyclist magazine podcast get out there and write that i think a lot of people <laughs> wonder that emma but not for that reason well, I <laughs> I look forward to seeing it when I hope we all get to go to the premiere of Mrs. Chippy and her adventures. Yeah, I mean, sad to say, I did think of this a few years ago when there was a hundred year anniversary. You could have done it. What about a children's book? Could be a children's book. Could really be a children's book. Start small and build big. I'll tell you what, as, as, as we all know, because <laughs> I don't shut up about it, I've got a child, which means I read children's books, which means I've now read David Walliams's children's Ooh. books. And I'm just like... No offence, David, and you're definitely not listening to this, so it doesn't matter, but just stick to other stuff. A, that's a bit rich, isn't it? It's a bit like Chris Hoy deciding he's going to cycle across the Antarctic. Yeah. It's like, it's too What's easy. What's that all about? It's too, you've got a name, so you can do it. That's fine. There's, where's the endeavour? And it's the same with David Williams. He's just like, oh yeah, it's me. Everyone's going to buy my books because I'm one of Britain's national treasures, inexplicably. Um, so mm. just leave it to Judith Kerr. I mean... Or James Spender. Or James I mean, Spender. as a writer... And apparent, James, you know, we're all waiting for Mrs. Chippy. That is what it says on my Twitter bio, writer, parent. <laughs> Mrs. Chippy enthusiast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Needs to learn a few more details, such as when Mrs. Chippy died and how. <laughs> 
Oh, I look forward to hearing all about it. Brilliant. Well, if you want a proofreader, yeah. I'm, I'm ready and rearing. <laughs> well, I'll tell you about it next time you meet. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. I just wanted to tell you that Cyclist isn't just a podcast. No, Cyclist is also a beautiful print magazine. It's packed full of all the best rides from around the world, the newest bikes and kit, and loads of in-depth articles featuring guests just like on today's show. So head on over to cyclist.co.uk slash subscriptions and check out our latest cyclist magazine subscription offers.